and, and about being left behind. I, I talk about that, as you'll see in the sermon this morning. And I thought, oh, great. God, the Holy Spirit, is really coordinating things. And then she played the song, uh, Blessed Be the Name. And I've got to just kind of open up to you this morning, and uh, I apologize if I get emotional, but about seven years ago, <clears throat> I was scheduled to go uh, um, up in northern Nevada to a motorcycle conference, Christian motorcycle conference. And uh, about two days before that, this was in July, um, <clears throat> we found out that our oldest son was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer. And so I went up there to the, to the conference, um, and all the way back, I was riding my motorcycle. Oh, I don't know how I got back because I couldn't see. I was crying so bad. All the way back, I sang that song, Blessed be the name the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And blessed be the name of the Lord. He is so faithful. Um, <clears throat> my son's cancer was, all, was in uh, lymph nodes. And of course, we prayed and prayed. And, and God, uh, by his mercy, uh, healed him. He is now, uh, this year, this summer, in August, he'll be seven years cancer-free. And I just, I just praise God for that. He's, uh, he's 42. So he was diagnosed at thir age 34 uh, with cancer. And I just want to share, I don't know why I shared that, but I just felt I needed to share that to tell you that we've got, we serve a great and powerful God. We do not comprehend how powerful he is and how much he loves us. As you can see from uh, the sign up there, the title for this morning's message is a mystery. I like uh, mystery books and mystery TV programs. Does anybody here like mysteries? If so, you ought to enjoy this morning because we're going to talk about a mystery. Um, for those of you who may not remember, I was here uh, a couple months ago in January. Does anybody remember me from there? Some don't. Okay, that's okay. I'm not that memorable. That's okay. <clears throat> Does anybody remember the, the uh, topic, the sermon topic that I preached on that day? What, what was that title? Do you know? It was Your Tomorrow in Uncertain Times. Your tomorrow in uncertain times. And if, if you can't remember me, and you don't remember my sermon title, maybe you'll remember this guy, this little uh, him. <laughs> maybe that will we'll, we'll spark your, your memory. This, was a, uh, this little kangaroo guy was a representation uh, that I used to talk about... Um, that person there being Jesus and us resting in peace in Jesus. I talked about, in that sermon, I talked about how there's a difference between us and the world, a great difference between us and the world, and how that difference is, is dividing. I talked about um, how Jesus promised us that we would have 
uh, uh, tribulation, difficult times in the world, but he also promised us that we would have his peace in the world if we're resting, resting in him by faith. Um, he promised us that if, if we uh, keep our faith in Christ, rooted in Christ, and what he accomplished on the cross of Calvary, and we keep that to the end, that, that faith to the end, that he would give us not only abundant life now, peace and victory in this life now, but that we would get rewards, we would become conquerors and more than conquerors, and we would get rewards when we get to heaven. I talked to you about eight of those rewards. And I'm not going to go over them today, but those rewards are for us as we get to heaven, as we continue in faith. So my question, my first question this morning, is how do we get to that place where we're getting those rewards? How do we get there from here, in this room, in this body here? First, of course, the, the assumption is that you, you've got to be saved and that you have your faith in Christ. Having that foundation, there are two ways we get to getting those rewards from where we are right now. One is we die. Paul says in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he says in Corinthians that to be absent from this body this physical body, is to be present with the Lord. So one way we get to those rewards is we got to die. But there's a second way. That second way is called the rapture. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to talk about what it is, where in the scripture is talked about, when it is, and how does it occur. In fact, I've put together a six-week Sunday school program that I teach and, and that covers this topic. And so what I'm going to be going over this morning is just the, the skimming the surface. It's just the highlights of what the scripture actually says about the topic of the rapture. So with that in mind, let's go to our text this morning. Our text is uh, John 14, 1 through 3. John 14, 1 through 3. And Jesus was talking and he said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Some translations translate that many mansions. Uh, the, the, the Greek there is actually dwelling places. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And when I do go and prepare a place for you, know that I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. This is the holy word of our living God. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that your spirit will permeate the hearts and minds of each of us here today, that we can hear your word, that your spirit may make it alive to us, so that we can give you honor and glory with our life throughout every aspect of every day until you return, until we see you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So here in John, <clears throat> Jesus is talking about the rapture. He's talking about his returning. 
Um, in our text, he specifically says that he's going to come back and pick up you and me or the, the, the believers that are on this earth when he returns. Those people who are saved, who are born again, and who are living for Jesus. When I read that verse, I instantaneously thought of him and saw in my head a father uh, sitting around uh, with his children, gathering his children around him and kibitzing with them and playing with them and carrying on and just enjoying them. I, re- I, re- I remembered the verse where Jesus was with the children and the disciples were, were trying to get the children away from Jesus uh, so that he could do, you know, ministry stuff. And Jesus chastised them and said, let the little kids come to me. Jesus wants to be with you. He wants his children, us, to be with him. Well, so in general terms, the rapture is just what Jesus was talking about here. Him returning to gather his children and hug them. The most uh, often used verse to talk about the rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And Paul says, But we would have not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him, Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The context of this verse that Paul is writing, um, he's writing to believers in the town of Thessalonica, and he's addressing them about the topic of death, specifically loved ones who were believers who have already died. They were afraid that, they, that, that people were going to be left behind when Jesus comes. And he's addressing that topic. And he uses the term asleep. And he's not talking about people taking a nap or people sleeping through the night. That Greek word that he's using there is, is specifically about death, people who have died. But in colloquial terms, he's using the term asleep. And he also uses the term there, others. The others that he's referring to are the lost people in the world who have no hope. They have no hope of life after death. They have no idea where they will spend eternity. They have no clue and they have no hope. One of the saddest pictures I've ever seen are people who have no hope. Verse 14 states that because we believe, because us believers, we believe in Jesus, who Jesus is. He is God incarnate, God in human form. 
100% God, 100% man. Because we believe who Jesus is, he's the promised Messiah for Israel. The anointed one. The son of God. Because we believe who he is, and we believe in, in what he did on the cross, the work he accomplished on the cross, how that his death paid the penalty for my sin nature, for your sin nature. That penalty is death, and he paid that for us. Because we believe who he is and his work on the cross, that not only does that, does that death pay the penalty for that sin nature, but it breaks the power of that sin nature in your life and in my life as we live our day, each and every day. Because we believe who he is, what he accomplished on the cross, and we believe in the resurrection that God rose him from the dead. That resurrection validates and confirms that Jesus is who he said he was. It confirms and validates that he is the son of God and that his, he paid the price for, this, for our sin nature and broke the power of that sin nature in us. Because we believe who Jesus is, the work he did on the cross, and in the resurrection, God will bring with Jesus those believers who have already died. The picture that you see is, is Jesus returning. We've all probably seen movies, old movies, where two armies will line up in a big open field, uh, and one on each side. And in front of the army, there is the head honcho, the king or whoever it is that's, that's out there. And then next to him, behind him, he's got a couple of his right and left-hand men, uh, uh, officers that, that coordinate things. The, 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 the king will give the word, uh, the, the, his right-hand man will, will shout the command, and then the whole army just charges. That's the picture that, that, you're, that you're getting here as, as we talk about the rapture. Jesus is coming back. And behind him, he's in heaven. And, 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 and behind him are armies of angels. And he gives the command, and uh, he starts down. He gives the command and shouts. And Gabriel, the archangel, gives the call of God. And then the God's trumpet is blown. And in that instant, in that fraction of a second, less time that it takes you to blink your eye, the dead in Christ arise. And then we who are left here on this earth rise up to meet him in the sky. Praise God, that's so cool. This pits, paints a picture of, of Jesus with ultimate authority and power. That he shouts a command, the archangel gives the order, the trumpet is blown, and in a fraction of an instant, those saints that have died already are raised in it with a new body. And we who are left here on the earth, when he comes, will raise up instantaneously and meet them in the sky. Not only does it paint a picture of him with ultimate power and authority, but it also paints an endearing, loving picture of Jesus coming back for his bride. The one who he loves. 
He loves the church, his bride. We oftentimes forget that, but he loves us so dearly. Just like a groom is is waiting for his bride, he's waiting to be reunited with his bride. It paints a picture of the lion of the tribe of Judah being reunited with his bride. And from that point on, we will always, always be with the Lord in his presence, never to be separated again. Amen. Well, if this verse is talking about the rapture, and it is, then why don't we see the word rapture in those verses we just read? Oxford Dictionary describes rapture as an intense pleasure, an intense joy. Well, in verse 17, there is a phrase that says caught up. That Greek word is harpezo. And it basically means uh, to be caught up, to be snatched away rapidly, to take them to oneself. Caught up means to, to seize by force for the purpose of removal. As Jesus said in John 14, as we read this morning, he will come again to pick you up. And he's going to come again rapidly. In 1 Thessalonians, we see that, as we read, there's going to be great pomp and circumstance in heaven as he comes to snatch us away and bring us to himself. Just, just like you would snatch your five-year-old up off the couch and, and, and hug him. Jesus is coming to snatch us away, those the believers that are on the earth when he comes. Praise God. The title, as I said, is Mystery. That title came from this next verse, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Paul says, Lo, and basically that means, hey, pay attention, wake up. Lo, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we shall not all die, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable nature must put on the imperishable, and this mortal nature must put on immortality. There are several mysteries that the Bible talks about, three in particular. The first mystery is the mystery of the Messiah. The Jews did not and still do not today comprehend and understand that the Messiah had to come first as a suffering servant before he could come as a conquering king. They miss that. They don't understand that. That's a mystery to them. The second mystery is us, the church. The Jews do not believe and cannot comprehend that the go- they call us go- goim, uh, non-Jewish people, Gentiles. They don't believe that we non-Jewish people who are believers in Christ, they, they have no concept that we will be, according to the scripture, grafted into the family of God. 
Just like you would take a, 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 a lemon branch and graft it into a, a lime tree. We would be grafted into the kingdom of the family of God. That was a mystery. Still is to the Jewish folks. And the third mystery is about our topic this morning, the rapture. <clears throat> so we've seen that Jesus said, promised in John 14, I'm coming back to get you. We saw that the Apostle Paul elaborated on that a little bit and says basically how that's going to happen, in what, in what manner. Um, We're going to look at when that's going to happen. So before I get into the exactly the when, let me ask you a question. How many here have heard and know about what's called the Great Tribulation? Well, let me expound on that a little bit for you. Um, <clears throat> it is also called... Uh, the day of the Lord, and it's also called the time of Jacob's trouble or the time of Jacob's woe. So if you read those phrases, understand it's talking about this period called the Great Tribulation. And the Great Tribulation is a seven-year period on this earth where this earth will be uh, ex exposed to and suffer uh, Horrible times and issues unlike it's seen before. Think about that. The world has already seen tons of famine, uh, tons of, of pestilence, um, tons of, uh, of uh, uh, plagues, uh, the flood, fires. Gee, just, just a year, year and a half ago, uh, a third or two-thirds of Australia burned up. We've seen, the earth has seen horrible devastating events take place. All of those will wane in comparison to this great tribulation. What's going to happen during this great tribulation? Seven-year period of time. God is going to use that time for a couple things. One, he's going to be judging the world because they've turned their back on God. They've raised their fist in his face and, and rejected him. And God's going to judge them during those seven year period, that seven-year period of time. He is also judging Israel during that seven-year period of time. And he's judging them to bring them back to relationship with him. Zechariah tells us that, uses the phrase, when they see him whom they have pierced. And the scripture goes on to talk about how there's going to be great sorrow in their hearts, great repentance. And as a result of that, they will come back and to God through seeing and understanding that Jesus is indeed their Messiah. So God's going to be using that seven-year period of time to judge the world who reject God, arrogantly defiant against him, and to judge Israel and bring Israel back into relationship. <clears throat> it's talked about, that tribulation is talked about in Daniel chapters 9 and 12. It's talked about in Jeremiah chapter 30 and in Revelation chapter 9, 12, and 13. So when is the rapture in relation to this seven-year period of great tribulation? That's a question. 
For most of church history, up until the late 1800s, church scholars and theologians believed that the rapture was going to happen after the Great Tribulation. That's called, in theological terms, a post-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation position. In the late 1800s, scholars and theologians and evangelicals began to change their thought process on that. And now, currently, most scholars and theologians think that the rapture is going to occur before the Great Tribulation. And then there are, that's called a pre-tribulation a rapture or pre-tribulation position. And there are some people who think that that rapture is going to occur right dead smack in the middle of the three-and-a-half-year period, and those folks are called mid-tribulation uh, position or rapture. The truth is, it doesn't matter when Jesus is coming back. The important thing is that we are convinced and have that faith, that positive expectation that he is indeed coming back for us. And it doesn't matter when he's going to be here. That's in God's hands, not ours. If, some, if, if you have one position and somebody else has, that you love or know has another position, don't argue with them. That's okay. Just join together in great expectation of joy and excitement looking for Jesus' return. This next slide is part of a chart that's called the God's Plan of the Ages. There's tons of stuff here and down here. Ignore that. What I want you to look at is this red line here in the middle with the cross. <clears throat> that's, that's a timeline through the ages. And what you see is that where the cross is, that's when Jesus first came to this earth, when he had his ministry, when he died on the cross, when he rose again. Right after that is the day of Pentecost, when the church age here started. That's also called the age of grace, because we are under God's grace, being grafted into the family of God. So after the crucifixion, there's the church age. Then under here is, at the end of the church age, there is the seven-year period of, called the Great Tribulation. And at the end of that great tribulation, without going into much detail, the, the world is, is going to be uh, coming against Israel, and they think they're going to try and annihilate Israel. Well, Jesus returns at the end of that great tribulation period. That's what that arrow is, Jesus' second coming. And he's going to put a stop to that, and he's going to set up his thousand-year reign on the earth at that point. He's actually going to be here reigning, ruling, and we actually are going to be doing that with him. Um, he's going to be using us uh, during uh, that thousand-year reign. And then at the end of that thousand-year reign, the world again will rebel against God, and then God puts an end to all of that stuff. And you, you, you then have the great white throne judgment here. And in that great white throne judgment, God is going to be judging the nations and he's going to judge the lost people of the world. And those people who don't know him, those lost people of the world are going to spend eternity down here in a lake of fire. So that's in general this timeline of God's plan through the ages. 
If you look at the church age, the very next event is the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. I am amazed at how close that time is. Back in the 60s and 70s, there was the, quote, Jesus revolution where, where the gospel got out and tons of people were being saved out of the hippie movement and the, all that sort of, and, and around the world. And we talked about the rapture occurring back then. But to be truthful, I never thought I would see what I'm seeing today in the world, the attitude of the world, how the world is going. I never thought I would see what I'm seeing in our culture, in our own country, in our states and cities. Jesus is coming back sooner than you and I think. Plain and simple. He is at the door ready to come. So, I listen, I pray daily for his return. And I listen daily for that godly trumpet. (laughs) Expecting to be flying through the sky. So that's basically about when the rapture is going to come. Let's talk a little bit about how the rapture is going to come. And let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, Lo, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable nature must put on imperishable, and this mortal nature must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? Because we won't be dead, we will be alive. Paul is going to tell us a mystery, he says, something that the Jews did not understand previously. It was unknown to them. It was blocked from their understanding. Likewise, the church did not understand much about this either. Paul was writing this some 20 to 24 years after the crucifixion, somewhere around 55 to 57 AD. And so the first 20 to 24 years of the church's existence they had a poor understanding of this concept called the rapture. Some of them toyed with the idea. Some of them remembered Jesus said, I'm going to come back for you. But they didn't understand it well. Jesus talked about it. Paul expounds it. They had no clear understanding or, doc- or teaching on this concept. So what is the mystery? The mystery is that not all of us will physically suffer death. That's a mystery. Since the beginning of time, as we know it, people live, they're born, they live, and they die. In fact, 
why do they die? Because the scripture says the wages of sin is death. And it's talking about our sin nature. It's not talking about acts of sin that we do. Anger or cussing or swearing or whatever. It's talking about our sin nature. The wages, the result of that sin nature is death. And so we're born, we live, and we die. Since The writer of Hebrews says it's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. And if that's the case, then why is Paul seemingly going against what Scripture says? He's going against it because of the supernatural event of God intervening in the world. Jesus, paying the penalty of the sin nature, changed the existing experience and rules that mankind followed in one specific and narrow way. Most of us, truthfully, will live, uh, be born, live, and die. But for those people who are on this earth, who are believers, when Jesus returns, they will not die. Think about that. That's a fantastic concept. Scripture says in verse 51 that we'll be changed. The word there is alaso. It means to be made different. We'll not be exactly as we are with this physical body. And it says how it's going to happen in the twinkling of an eye, in a fraction of a second. When's it going to happen? When that angel blows that last trumpet. The process, as we talked about, the dead will be raised first. Both Old Testament saints and New Testament saints who are believers will be raised first. They've been, they've been in a safe place called Abraham's bosom, otherwise known as, as paradise. And they're going to be raised instantaneously given a new imperishable body. That's, that's amazing. We, we have been, as humans, we have been dying since the moment we were born. As a physician, I can tell you that, that yes, we're, we're, we're making new cells and new tissue, but we're also dying off cells and tissue. For the first part of our life, all the, 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 the making up, the building up part, outweighs the dying off part. In the last half of our life, the dying off part outweighs the building up part. From the moment we're born, because of the sin nature that's within us, we begin the dying process. These Old Testament and New Testament believers that have already died are going to be raised with a body that is imperishable. It will not die. Then we who are alive on the earth will be changed in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye, to meet him in the sky. So why... Why do we need a new body? Why do we need a different body? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. There are three basic reasons why. First off, 1 Corinthians 15.50 says that flesh and blood, your body, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I tell you the truth, Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does this perishable inherit the imperishable. So the first reason why we need a new body is because this one cannot inherit God's kingdom where he's taking us. 
The second reason is that God's ultimate plan is to restore our relationship with him to the same way it was with Adam and Eve before the fall, before sin entered. They could do tons of stuff. They had a a, a significant, different experience in their physical body than what we do. This relationship that God wants to restore is a spiritual relationship, it's an intellectual relationship, it's an emotional relationship, and it's a physical relationship. The scripture says that Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day in the garden, chatting and having relationship with God, carrying on enjoying his presence. Physical interaction. This body can't do that. We cannot be in the presence of God because we are sinful. We have a sinful nature. And the scripture says that God can't be in the presence of sin. He destroys it. So this body can't be there. That's a second reason why we need a new body. The third reason is that um, this mortal body could not tolerate the things that our new body is going to be able to do. The scripture tells us in Philippians that Paul says, we don't know exactly what that body is going to be like, but we do know this, he says, it's going to be like Jesus' body was after the resurrection. Well, what did Jesus' body do after the resurrection? The day he went out for a hike. He went on a road and met two disciples walking to a town called Emmaus. And he's walking with his disciples, and they're talking about the events, the, 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 cruci- the, the, the fake trial, the horrible, illegal trial throughout the night, um, and how Jesus was, was brutally uh, tortured and beaten and crucified. They're just distraught, and they're walking, and Jesus is joining them on that, that walk. And, and uh, he asked them, what are you talking about, guys? And they said, don't you know anything? Haven't you been here in Jerusalem? to know what's happened. So they tell him everything. Well, Jesus' response is that he then takes them from the Old Testament scriptures, book by book, in every book of the Old Testament, and explains to them how the Messiah is revealed in each of those old books and how he had to suffer before he came as a conquering king. They didn't recognize who Jesus was, even though it says they were disciples. In fact... One of those disciples was Jesus' uncle. I don't know about you, but I know what my nephew looks like. He, he may live in another state, but I can pick him out in a crowd. They're walking next to him, and Jesus, somehow, his body was able to disguise itself so that they did not recognize him. Our body's going to be like his body. Jesus at one time went from one village to another one instantaneously. Is that mental teleportation? I don't know. But we're going to be like him. The scripture says that the disciples were cowardly hunkering down in that room for fear that the Romans were going to come and take them away and execute them next. They had the door locked. They had it bolted. They had it braced on the inside. And the scripture says that Jesus was instantaneously among them. It doesn't say that he went to the door and knocked on the door and had them open it. It doesn't say that he unlocked it, unbolted, and took the braces away from the inside. He apparently went through the wall and just just appeared 
in the room with him, in that body. And the scripture says, Paul says, we don't know what we're going to be like, but our body is going to be like Jesus' body. In fact, the Old Testament scripture talks about a number of different things, and we get some insights that, that are beyond our comprehension. <clears throat> the, 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 scripture, the, the scripture says that the eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor heart conceived what God has in store for you. We need a new body to handle all of that. All those believers who had died before the crucifixion will get that new body. All of us will get that new body in an instant. The dead are going to get the body first. Why? Rightly so, actually. They've been hanging around longer than we have. <laughs> it's, it's part of that, that scriptural principle of the first shall be last and the last first type thing. They're going to get that body first and we're going to get it second, but all of that occurs in a fraction of a second. This perishable body must be changed to an imperishable one, a new physical body, a new spiritual body. This mortal nature, this sin nature that I have, must be changed to a pure immortal nature our divine nature. As I begin to wrap this up this morning, Paul in, in 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about being caught up. That Jesus is going to come back and he's going to forcibly, rapidly catch us up and bring us to him and hug us. As I said, that Greek word is harpezo, to sneeze, to seize, to catch away, to pluck or pull or take by force, to rapture to take by force for immeasurable pleasure and joy and bring us to him. Jesus is going to scream the command. I don't know if he's going to say now or if he's going to say blow the horn or if he's going to say let's roll. But he's going to shout some sort of a command and Gabriel is going to shout the command to the angel with the horn and that horn's going to be blown. And from that instant on, you will always, always be with Jesus. Do you love him? Do you want to be with him like that? Life's worries will be gone, forgotten forever. My message to you this morning, my encouragement to you this morning is to live your life in such a way as to be ready for his return. Be ready. For his return. He may come back at any moment. And when asked about his return, Jesus said, the folks here on earth will be like those uh, in the time of Noah before the flood. Matthew 24. He said, Jesus says, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and they were drinking and they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they did not know until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One is caught up and raptured, and the other is left behind.
They didn't know in Noah's time until it was too late. So it will be when Jesus returns for us. The world will be carrying on in their arrogance, in their pride, in their debauchery, in their rebellion, partying, oblivious to the calamity that is soon coming their way. The Lord encourages us to pray always and not lose heart in Luke 18.1. And then he says in Luke 18.7, And will not God vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night, constantly praying? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will vindicate them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When he comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find you living faithfully for him? Will he find you praying to him? as we're told to pray without ceasing? Will he find you honoring and worshiping him? Will he find you loving others and sharing the gospel? Jesus said he's going to come like a thief in the night in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, but as to the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need to have anything written to you because you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So once again, my message and my encouragement to you this morning is to live your life in such a way as to be ready for his return. It should no longer be a mystery to you that he's coming back. And he's coming back to pick up his believers, his church, on the earth. So keep yourself rooted, melded with Christ. Keep your faith, your, your, your perspective of you, like our little friend, molded, resting in Christ and the work that Christ did on the cross. Keep your faith there, believing and resting in him, so that when he returns, he finds you resting in peace, resting in his love, right where you belong. Amen. Stand with me this morning. Father God, I pray that your spirit will take your word and make it alive to us today and this week and in the months and years to come if you tarry. May we pray constantly throughout the day looking for ways to honor you with our life looking for ways to share the gospel and love others into your kingdom, looking for your Holy Spirit to to give us that victory that you've promised as we keep our faith in the work that you did on the cross, giving us that victory and that peaceful, abundant life. May we honor you with our lives until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.